now we're coming to uh, coming to the event that's going to set everything in motion. Uh, the uh, the events in Revelation four and five are uh, they're uh, integral to the Book of Revelation because uh, all the events that follow this are what pours forth from uh, the scene that we're seeing in Revelation four and five. Um, this is uh, it's very important to understand these two chapters uh, because uh, we're going to see the book. With the seals and once those seals start to be uh, broken is when you're going to see all the the judgments and things that pour forth in the rest of the book so the last time the scene was set for us in in chapter four this is revelation is a very dramatic letter it's written it's written as a as a drama an unfolding drama and john is a master at setting the scene uh dramatic pauses for effect you know all that kind of thing and last time in chapter four we were brought uh we were brought into uh the throne room of god the heavenly tabernacle uh we saw the people of god the heavenly hosts uh worshiping god uh who sat on the throne saying that he was worthy of worship because uh, he is the sovereign creator of the universe, and that's the song that they sang. Uh, well, well, now something amazing is about to happen in the throne room of God, and John's going to record that for us in uh, Revelation 5. And it's going to happen in the midst of the worship that's going on. So uh, it, we'll just start right off in chapter 5, verse 1. It says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. Now, here's the big question uh, right out of the gate. What is the book? And, and we're going to see that uh, at the breaking of these seals uh, of, of this book, this scroll, uh, judgments are going to issue forth. But uh, before we even get that far we've got to look at how the book is described and see if we can see if we can make some sense out of it i know a lot of folks are going to just say well the book is this or the book is that uh, i'm going to give you um Probably, I'll try to at least uh, at at least mention the uh, the different viewpoints, and then tell you what I what I think and why I think that. Um, first thing, though, if you, if you've got a if you've got an NIV or an ESV translation, uh, your Bible says that it's a scroll rather than a book. But if you're reading an NASB, a New American Standard Bible, or a King James Bible, uh, it's going to say a book. So, what is it actually? Is it a scroll? Or is it a book? Um, the the word in in the Greek New Testament is uh, is uh, biblion, which is a book. But it is important for you to understand why it's translated as a scroll uh, by some people rather than you know rather than a book. As you already know, that John is using much of the same language as Ezekiel when he describes uh, this throne room vision, this scene of the throne. So the the book that he uh, that he sees is said to be written on the front and the back and this is a clear allusion to ezekiel 2 uh, verses 9 and 10 where Ezekiel's presented with the same image. Uh, let me read those verses to you. Ezekiel 2, verse 9 and 10 says, Then I looked, and behold, a hand was extended to me, and lo, the scroll of a book was in it. Uh, when he spread it out before me, it was written on the front and the back, and written on it were lamentations, mournings, and woe. Um, you know, so here is where it's going to get a little complicated, so so follow me. Start this over if you need to uh, in Hebrew 
the book scroll is called Minla Sefer. That's the Hebrew words. And, and it's the book of a scroll. It's the scroll of a book. And in the Septuagint, which is the text of the Old Testament that the New Testament authors quote more often than not, the Greek Old Testament, it, it's called Kephales Bibliu, which is means the scroll of a book. Now, the reason some translate, uh, some translations translate Revelation 5.1 as a scroll and some as a book is because John is clearly making reference to the same thing that Ezekiel saw. And because people have known this for a long time, some have interpreted it rather than just translated it as book. Uh, the word Biblios means book. I mean, that's where we get the word Bible and it means book. But John is clearly taking an allusion from Ezekiel where he saw the scroll of a book. So when you think of a book like we have today, you know, that's what the first century church would have called a, a codex. And, you know, there's some discussion as to whether the church was the first people to use the codex, too, as well. So, you know, I don't have a, a problem calling it a scroll or a scroll of a book. Uh, but the word in Revelation simply says book. Uh, but when you take into account the fact that John says this book is written on the front and on the back, you kind of get the picture of what we would call a scroll rather than a book. But, but whatever you want to call it. It's clearly a reference to the same thing that Ezekiel saw in Ezekiel chapter 2, those verses that we read. And what was written on this scroll of a book that Ezekiel is given, uh, he tells us what's written there in, in the verses that I read to you. It's lamentations. Uh, mourning, mourning like you, not mourning like good morning, but mourning like you would mourn for grief and woe. So we know that when this book or the scroll gets opened, you know, it's not going to be something good. It's going to be lamentation, mornings, and woe. But but why is it sealed? Uh, do you remember from the previous discussions we had about Daniel, his prophecies? In Daniel 12, verse 3, God commands Daniel to conceal the words and seal the book until the end time. And here the word is definitely book uh, in, in the Greek Septuagint. After Daniel asked God what the outcome of all these prophecies would be, God tells Daniel in, in Daniel chapter 12, verse 9, he says, Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. So we have here the combination of two images from the Old Testament. We have the scroll of a book written on the front and back from Ezekiel chapter 2, and we have the book that Daniel uh, is uh, Daniel writes that is sealed until the end time. Uh, this is what John sees in the hand of the one who sits in the on the throne. Now, before we move on, we're going to have to answer a question that people have fought over for centuries. Uh, what exactly is this book? What exactly is this scroll? Um, there have been many different interpretations, and if you, you know, like I said, you pick up a commentary, you know, it, you're rolling the dice as to which one says which one. Uh, some people say that the book, of, this is the book of life that records the names of the save of the saved people. You know, the the Lamb's book of life. Some say that it's uh, the Old Testament. The Ten Commandments in Exodus thirty two fifteen are said also to be written on the front and the back, and so some people take it as the the 
Ten Commandments. Some people say that the book is the it's the title deed to creation. It's like the title of ownership to creation. The father is passing that ownership on to uh, to the son. Uh, there's lots of people who see it as a will or a, a testament um, during this period. Uh, the the readers would uh, the first century readers in this uh, Roman Empire would surely have uh, ha- have brought some of this to mind because Roman law during this time demanded that at at least seven witnesses were to seal a will or a testament you know and only at the death of that person would someone be charged with breaking the seals and enforcing the will and that's certainly possible a, a guy named Emmett Russell published an article in, in uh, 1958 about the similarities between uh, Roman wills, uh, you know, Roman last testaments and uh, and Revelation chapter five. It's very interesting. You can go look it up. His name is Emmett Russell. Uh, finally, uh, many people see the book as uh, as the book of the covenant. Uh, the book contains the covenant stipulations and the promises of God uh, that with his covenant people, which means, you know, it contains the judgments that's that are promised if the covenant is not kept. Now, I tend to lean toward this view uh, because when the book's seals are open, it's going to be clear that the covenant judgments that are promised throughout the Old Testament are going to be poured out on the people. We're going to see it over and over again. I told you that Revelation is going to allude to the Old Testament over and over and over and over again. Uh, when the Lamb receives, we're going to see all this in a minute. When the Lamb receives the new, the new covenant, when he receives the, uh, when the Lamb dies for the, for the, uh, for the fulfillment of the old covenant, bringing forth the new covenant, that releases all the judgments promised in the old co- covenant. And they're all poured out. And hopefully this is going to become clearer as we work through the book. Um, it also gives us the significance of the, the seven seals of the book. Uh, when God was uh, pronouncing the covenant, when he was establishing the covenant and giving the stipulations of the covenant and all those kind of things, uh, he, he said uh, oftentimes that if you don't keep this covenant, I'm going to punish you uh, seven times for your for your sins. The, the laws in Leviticus uh, for God's old covenant people, it said this over and over again, uh, which may be why there are seven judgments in each section, seven seals seven bowls seven trumpets uh, Leviticus 26 18 says if also after these things you do not obey me I'll punish you seven times more for your sins Leviticus 20 26 21 if then you act with hostility against me and are unwilling to obey me I will increase the plague on you seven times according to your sins in 26 24 and Leviticus says then I will act with hostility against you and I even I will strike you seven times for your sins and then he says it again in Leviticus 26 28 all this is in leviticus 20 26 he says then i will act wrathfully i will act wrathful i will act with wrathful hostility against you and i even i will punish you seven times for your sin leviticus 26 and deuteronomy 28 are the premier sections where god pronounces the covenant curses if the people fail to uh, keep the covenant and we are going to see as we walk through this book that uh, revelation is pretty much a commentary on those covenant judgments they're going to be the same judgments that god promised in uh deuteronomy 28 are going to be poured out in revelation so those two connections uh the connection between deuteronomy 28 and the connection between the the judgments in revelation are just uh they're too big for me to dismiss and so that's why i lean toward the view that this book is the uh it's the 
And I can't say for absolute certain uh, it's this or that, but it's obvious that it is the it's the book of the covenant. It's pouring forth the judgments of the covenant. It it may be the uh, the the reception of the new covenant and the and the dissolution of the old. It may be the fulfillment of the judgments of the old. It, it it's given to the Lamb, and He opens the seals. And once those seals are open, the the judgments of the covenant, and we see in the Old Testament are poured out so uh, that is a that's a certainty um you know and you're also going to see a laundry list of, of blessings for obedience and all those kind of things in deuteronomy 28 so deuteronomy 28 is not just uh you know all these bad things are going to happen to you it's a it's a list of blessings if you obey and a list of cursings if you don't and almost every commentator recognizes that the judgments that are laid forth in revelation mirror the judgments that are prophesied of course a lot of people will put different meanings and significance to that but uh the fact that uh, it kind of mirrors each other is undeniable and you know this also aligns with the fact that the scroll written on the front and the back in ezekiel uh, is filled with lamentation mourning and woe it's filled with judgment uh, the book being opened is not good news for the people who have broken covenant with god uh, and there can be no new covenant unless one is found worthy to fulfill the old there's got to be justice uh, there must be a reckoning for sin and, and against god's law so this book that we see the one holding the one on the throne's holding uh you could say that god is going to uh, uh god is going to divorce his old covenant people because they've broken covenant with him they've been an unfaithful wife to him and by the end of revelation he's going to take a new bride and that new bride is those who are in christ now i know when i said that statement i know that statement uh, that's going to get a lot of pushback. So you, you don't have to totally agree with me yet. You know, just put that off to the side. Make sure, see if I prove my case. Uh, let's get through a significant portion of the book, and hopefully I'm going to prove that case to you as we go. Uh, since this is the book of the covenant, and it includes the stipulations of the covenant of God, uh, we are going to see that there's there's absolutely no one worthy to open the book. The covenant of God was made with man, so man must fulfill the covenant in order to open the book. It's got to be a man that fulfills this covenant because God made this covenant with man, but there's a problem. All have sinned, and no one's kept the covenant no one all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of god no one can satisfy the stipulations of god's law no one is worthy to open the book no one is worthy to receive the kingdom of god and open the door of the covenant for god's people and and we see this in in verse 2 of revelation 5 it says and i saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals and verse 3 says and no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Uh, in, in this courtroom scene, this scene is the it's the heavenly tabernacle of God. We've come to a point where where things seem hopeless. Uh, no one in heaven or earth is worthy to open the book. No one is worthy to fulfill the covenant. John understands this clearly, and he begins to weep. In verse 4 it says, Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. You can almost feel the hopelessness, can't you? Uh, there's no hope. There's no hope for anyone. Throughout the Bible, over and over again, man 
man could not fulfill the covenant stipulations of God. Adam failed. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob failed. The nation of Israel failed. Moses, David, all of them were sinners and fell short of the glory of God. No one has ever kept the covenant and been worthy to receive the kingdom. But there is now, we're going to see in this scene, one who is worthy. There is now a man, a real man, who can step forward to the very throne of God and he himself is going to be given dominion in the kingdom. Verse 5 says, And one of the elders said to me, These are the elders, the people, the people of God. Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. John is told by one of the elders that there is one worthy. There is one who's overcome. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Uh, The name for Christ, this lion of the tribe of Judah, it comes from Genesis uh, 49.9 when Jacob was blessing his sons. Uh, before he died, he said, uh, he said, Judah is a lion's whelp. And in Hebrews seven fourteen, uh, the writer tells us that Jesus was indeed descended from the tribe of Judah. So, um, he's also called the root of David, which is a fulfillment of Isaiah 11, 1, uh, where the Messiah is prophesied to be a stem of Jesse and a branch that's going to bear fruit. Uh, we also see this in the New Testament. In Romans 1, 13, Jesus is said to be the son of David. Matthew 1, the gene- genealogy shows us that he is born from the line of David. So all that's just evidence, but it shouldn't be a stretch for you to recognize that Jesus is who is being spoken of here. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is... Uh, the uh, the root of David. Now, now keep this in mind. That this lion is said to be worthy. He's worthy to open the book, and he is said to have overcome. He's worthy. He's worthy to open the book because he's overcome. You need to remember this. We're going to need to remember it later. It's important. He's worthy to open the book because he has overcome and conquered. But first, I want you to I want to make sure that you don't miss the fact that John is told that the Lion of Judah is the worthy one. Make sure you get this in your brain. You're going to need this later. John does not see a lion. He is told that there is a lion. He hears that the Lion of Judah has conquered, and it's because he conquered that he's worthy to take the book and open the seals. John hears the report of the elder that says the Lion of Judah is is the worthy one. But when John turns to look He doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb. Verse 6 says, And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, he said, I saw a lamb standing as if slain. Uh, Now, this is, uh, let me just finish the verse. A lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Uh, when it says a lamb slain, there's going to be a lot of, uh, a lot of differences in translations that you see, but the, the, the word slain is in the perfect passive. So he doesn't see a lamb being slain. He doesn't see a lamb. He sees a lamb that had been slain that has already been slain but 
you know, he sees it as if it is standing in the altar. So it's it's not as if it's dead. It's one that has been slain, but yet standing in the, at the throne. Uh, John hears that there's a lion, but when he turns, he doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb. Now, this lamb looks as if he had been slain, but he's not a dead lamb. He's a living lamb that stands between the between or near the throne. Um the slain lamb, of course, you know, you probably know where that image comes from. It comes from the Passover, which was how God brought deliverance through death, you know, for the people in bondage to Egypt. But the Messiah of God's also prophesied to be slaughtered like a sheep in Isaiah chapter 53. is like a sheep led to the slaughter. <clears throat> and so. That's probably not a new thing, not a new concept for you. I just want to make sure I make mention of it because that's where it comes from. And I told you I was going to give you as much evidence as I could. Um, so the lamb being slain isn't all that hard. Uh, but what about all these horns and these eyes? Uh, I mean, these are some, that's a strange looking lamb. And you got to remember, we got to remember as we walk through the book of Revelation, uh, most of the book of Revelation is symbolic. It's showing forth symbols from the Old Testament. That doesn't mean that the judgments aren't real. It doesn't mean that uh, uh, the things don't correspond to an actual reality and we should just read it like a story, like you would read Shakespeare or something. But it means that we can't force uh, we can't force our literalist mindset onto it. Uh, now let me explain that a minute because some, some people may take that the wrong way. I do think that the Bible should be read literally but what that means is you read it according to the literature that it is. Um, I don't read Jesus's words to saying I am the door to mean that he is a block of wood with hinges on it. Uh, I understand that he was uh, he was using parabolic language. He was using. Uh, um, a symbol to illustrate who he is. He definitely is the door, and it literally means he is the door. He is the doorway into uh, eternal life. But it doesn't mean that he's a you know he's a a piece of wood. And in the same way, uh, you know, you and I know that uh, Jesus Himself is not a four legged fluffy lamb. Uh, he is being pictured as a lamb because that's who he is. He was the Lamb of God who was. Uh, slain to take away the sins of the world. Uh, and so you have to be careful and, and look at the symbols as representing a reality. But still, we know that in the throne room of God, where Jesus sits at the right hand, he's not a fluffy lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. I mean, that would be kind of frightening, actually. So what do these symbols mean? Uh, first of all, the Bible in the Bible, horns are a symbol of power. You've probably heard people say that before, but I want to demonstrate how I know that. Uh, the strongest animals in the biblical world were the ones with the horns, with the ones with the most horns, and they gored other animals. And so, I, I'm not just going to tell it to you and not back you up. I I promised I wouldn't do that. So if this gets a little laborious for you, you can fast forward through. Um, but in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10, Hannah is singing a song to the Lord for the giving of her son. And in verse 10, she says, this is Hannah's uh, song, and it's written in Hebrew poetry. It says, those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he 
will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed. Hebrew poetry um, is often it uses something called parallelism. It doesn't it doesn't rhyme like we think poetry should, you know, in the modern day. But in Hebrew. Uh, the poem would have uh, two lines uh, set against each other, and they will either say the same thing as each other in a different way, or they'll say something absolutely contrary uh, or opposite from one another. And you see here that it's saying the same thing in this poetic verse. It's saying, and he will give strength to his king, and he will exalt the horn of his anointed. He's saying the same thing in a different way. Uh, she is, Hannah here is, is using the horn as a reference to the anointed power or, or strength. Uh, it's called parallelism in Hebrew poetry. You can go and look that up. A lot of people have written on that subject. Um, and here's another parallelism from uh, Psalm 89 verse 17. It says, for the glory of their strength and by your favor our horn is exalted. Our strength and our horn are placed together. Psalm 112 9 says, he has given freely to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted in honor. Uh, when Jeremiah gives his prophecy against the nation of Moab, he says, The horn of Moab of Moab has been cut off, and his arm is broken, declares the Lord. Jeremiah 48, 25. Um, there, there's other examples, but I think that's enough to establish that the symbol of a, of a horn is often used to denote strength or power in these... Uh, in these poetic texts. And so here the lamb is said to have seven horns. And you remember our discussion of the number seven, its use in the Old Testament. If you don't go back to chapter one and listen to it, he has all power, perfected power. He is indeed a slain lamb, but he is also an all powerful Messiah. Now, a lot of people, almost exclusively, almost all the commentators will say that the horns denote power and strength. And so I'm not saying anything new here. I just wanted to give you the, 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 background to where that comes from and having seven eyes the lamb the lamb has seven eyes seven eyes we've talked about this before but once again john is referencing zechariah chapter 4 uh, verse 10 which speaks of the all-powerful spirit of god uh, that knows all zechariah sees the the vision of the seven lamps in chapter 4 you remember uh, among other things and and he asks what they are and he is told that these are the eyes of the lord which range to and fro throughout the earth in, in Zechariah chapter 4.10. And we're also told in, in 2 Chronicles 16.9, I hope you're writing all these down, that the uh, the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth so that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. So here what we have is a lamb being slain, but now he's alive, and he is the all-powerful Messiah of God. He is the one that has been prophesied about. He is he has all knowledge of those whose hearts are completely his. And so this is a this is a picture of the Messiah of God that is wrapped in uh, many different Old Testament references. And then look what this lamb does. In verse 7 he says, and he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sits on the throne. The lion and the lamb. The the John hears that this is the lion of Judah. He looks and sees that it's the lamb that's been slain. He steps forward. This lamb steps forward and he receives the book from the one who sits on the throne. He receives the book from the from the father. If you haven't already recognized this, 
John is seeing the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. This is the moment. Daniel 13 and 14, Daniel verse chapter 7, verse 13 and 14 says, and we've read it before, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Here is what all of salvation history has been waiting for. The Son of Man has come to the throne and taken the book of the covenant in his hand. He's worthy to fulfill it, worthy to receive the kingdom of God and reign as Lord of Lords as both God and man. For the first time in all of history, a man has come and been exalted at the throne of God. For the first time, a man has been found worthy to open the book of the covenant to uh, have fulfilled the covenant. Jesus Christ, both God and man. Now watch what happens when the Lamb takes this book. Uh, when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Remember I told you when the uh, the 24 elders uh, represent the people of God because they do the work uh, of the priests and the kings, but I also told you that 24, I, I link those, the, 20, the number 24 with uh, the 24 divisions of priests and the 24 divisions of singers in first corinthians uh i mean first chronicles chapter 24 and chapter 25 and look at what they're doing here they're singing and they're doing the words works of the priest they're holding a harp and they're offering the prayers of the saint saints and that's why i connect those two it says but look at the way that they worship they sang a new song this is not the same song they sang in, in chapter 4. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain. Why is he worthy to take the book? For he was slain, and he purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. I hope you recognize that, that phrase from what I just read in Daniel. You have made them to be a kingdom, and priests to our God been given the kingdom just like he was in Daniel and they will reign upon the earth it's almost exactly what Daniel said would happen when the one like a son of man comes to the ancient of days did you see what just happened when the lamb took the book the worship of all of heaven was given to him it was given to the lamb they say the same thing to the lamb here that they said to the one on the throne in the previous chapter worthy are you worthy are you the Four living creatures and 24 elders all bow down before the Lamb and ascribe worship to Him. It's also interesting. I don't know if I, I told you this in chapter 4, but one of the main reasons why I... Uh why I connect that is uh, why I connect the uh, uh, the uh, throne room of God here with uh, with uh, the the uh, vision that, that Daniel sees uh, with uh, with what's going on in Revelation because the vision that Daniel sees the the Son of Man coming to the 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 throne room of heaven it's the throne of God the heavenly tabernacle um, but more importantly than that that's kind of an aside but you need to see two things. You need to see two things here. First, the Lamb has fulfilled the covenant and is worthy to open the book. The new song that they sing, which is a fulfillment of Isaiah 42, uh, 
uh, sing a new song to the Lord, is that lamb, the lamb is worthy to open the book. Why does it say he's worthy? Because you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men of every tribe, tongue, and nation. The lamb has conquered and overcome and is worthy to take the book. That is what the elder told John at the beginning. But here we see why the lamb has conquered or how, excuse me, the lamb has conquered. He conquered by giving his life for the sins of his people. He's worthy to break the seals because he has purchased, redeemed these people. He alone has fulfilled the covenant and that makes him worthy to take the covenant document and break the seals, releasing the blessings and the cursings of the covenant. The new covenant has been ratified and that brings forth all the judgments of the old on those who have not kept the covenant Uh, the second thing you need to see here is that the lamb is given the kingdom verse 10 says that the lamb has made these people to be the kingdom he's made them to be priests and the people that the lamb purchase shall reign upon the earth just like in daniel's vision the son of man has come to the throne of the ancient of days he's been given a kingdom and a dominion that's never going to pass away uh, but now he, he he has made them a kingdom and he's made them priests. He has done it by his blood, by his sacrifice. He has conquered and is worthy to receive dominion because he fulfilled the covenant, satisfied the justice of the law by his death and resurrection. So here is where we will answer the question as to when the events of chapter four and five take place. Are they sometime in the future, close to the end of history? Is that when the lamb takes dominion by by making his people a kingdom by his blood um i think the answer to that question is pretty obvious uh the last days began when jesus was crucified and resurrected uh the kingdom of god came uh jesus has ascended to the right hand of the father and has received the everlasting dominion which daniel spoke of the last days arrived with the resurrection so we we asked a question last time the question was is this picture something that that will happen in the future just before the end or is it something that has already happened and being and it's related to the seven churches of Asia Minor to give them hope and strength in the midst of their troubled times uh, the answer to that question for me is it's absolutely obvious Jesus has already overcome he has already conquered he has already fulfilled the covenant he has already taken the book of the covenant and fulfilled its contents he has inaugurated the new covenant uh, and and by the way this scene here in Revelation 5 is it's one of the most powerful passages demonstrating the deity of Christ because the lamb is given the same worship here as the one on the throne was given in chapter 4 uh, the kingdom of God has come. This is the message that Jesus preached. He said in the very beginning of Mark's gospel, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Uh, but as we've you know, we've said before in the first chapter of Revelation, there's also a sense in which the kingdom has not yet been fully consummated. So we have an already, but we also have a not yet. The kingdom has come. It's here. Christ is reigning. He's on the throne. His people reign. But there is also a sense in which we will reign completely over sin and it will be abolished and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth that's to come. 
the kingdom is going to come in perfection where there's no more sin and death and you know all these things are passed away but that doesn't change the fact that right now jesus reigns and has fulfilled the prophecy of daniel jesus has come to the ancient of days to the throne and he has received the kingdom dominion he did that at the ascension when jesus ascended to heaven he made it clear when he ascended right before he ascended he told the disciples all power and authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth that's what he said so we're looking at a close-up view of the worship of the lamb and the one who sits on the throne by the heavenly court here but now as we finish out the fifth chapter um as we finish out this chapter the camera uh is going to pan out it's going to pull back and give us a wide shot of what's going on it's as if the camera pulls back and shows us the whole of the heavenly court verse 11 says then i looked and i heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing the the heavenly host here is worshiping the lamb who has received the kingdom and power and dominion. Daniel chapter 7 verse 10 is fulfilled. The son of man has received his everlasting kingdom and he has received it, this is very important, by his death and resurrection. That's what the new song said. Worthy are you because you were slain and you redeemed these people. A man has been exalted to the throne of God. He's both God and man and reigns forevermore. Uh, But the deity of Christ is expressed in no uncertain terms here. But it was a man who came finally and was able was able to take the book of the covenant is going to be able to open the seals because he's the only man who's ever kept the covenant of God. Even the heavenly angelic host gives worship to the lamb as they ascribe glory and honor and power to him. These are the same attributes they ascribe to the father in chapter four so here the worship of the lamb they worship the lamb using the same words uh remember here that the church is about to go through some intense suffering there is going to uh the, the they're going to be called on to give their lives we saw this in in the chapters two and three all hell is about to break loose they need to know that jesus is indeed on the throne he has indeed conquered and and made them a kingdom he indeed is reigning over all the elements of history and he has succeeded in his purpose they need this they need this assurance and they need to know that they're suffering is not in vain and then we're going to see once again the camera is going to pull out again and show us an even greater picture of the kingdom of god and the worship of christ here we get a get get a a quick glimpse of uh the new creation and and what shall be verse 13 and 14 says and every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them i heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor glory dominion forever and the four living creatures um saying amen and the elders fell down and worshiped uh and we have a glimpse here of the reality. Christ reigns over all creation. Um, we have uh, we have men that 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 refuse to worship Him, but all of creation worships Him. The uh, the the fish do what the fish are supposed to. The grass obeys. The sun obeys. The the clouds and the birds they obey. When God says go, they go. Uh, there's only one creature under heaven when God orders that 
that says, no, I'm not going to do what you say. And that's man. Uh, but here we have a glimpse. We also have a glimpse that that is a reality already. So I'm saying it's that for sure. But we also have a glimpse into the reality uh, that is going to be expressed. Uh, we have a glimpse into the reality that has already been inaugurated. It's been inaugurated in Christ. And then one day it's going to be completely Consummated, And this is what the church, those churches in Asia Minor needed to see. This is what the church as a whole needed to see. Um, there's a commentator called named D- David Chilton. He expresses it this way. I'm going to quote from him. It says, The church in St. John's Day was about to experience a time of severe testing and persecution. Already they were seeing what in a sane age could scarcely be imagined. They were seeing a union between Israel and Rome. These Christians needed to understand history as something not ruled by change or evil men or even the devil, but ruled instead from God's throne by Jesus Christ. They needed to see that Christ was reigning right now. They, that he had already wrested the world from Satan's grasp and that even now all things in heaven and earth were bound to acknowledge him as king. They needed to see themselves in the true light, not as forgotten troops in a lonely outpost fighting a losing battle, but as kings and priests already waging war and overcoming predestined to victory with the absolute assurance of conquest and dominion with the high king over the earth. They needed the biblical philosophy of history that all of history created and controlled by God's personal and total government is moving inexorably toward the universal dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ. The new and final age of history has arrived. The new covenant has come. Behold the lamb he has conquered. And so what we see here is when he said the union of Israel and Rome, what he's talking about there is both. Uh, we even see this. You, you just read the book of Acts. You can see it happening in the very early stages. Israel was was uh, uh, the national Israel was was joining forces with Rome to persecute the church. You can see that in Paul's travels. Uh, many times uh, Israel would uh, would go to the Romans and they would say, you know, this Paul he is uh, you know uh, uh, teaching customs that are against our law and, and all these things, uh, trying to trying to bring the weight of Roman um, uh, of Roman authority down on the heads of Christians. Uh, the first persecutors of the church in the book of Acts were not Romans. They were Jews. They were national Israel. And so what what we see here is these two forces are going to align against the church. And God is going to show them that in this book, uh, God is going to move to... Um, He's going to rectify that situation, and the believers need to understand that uh, that He is in control, even when it seems like they're suffering, even when it seems like they're being persecuted from every side, even when it seems like there's nothing but destruction coming. Uh, they need to know that that God is in control. Uh, it's uh, it's in chapter six where we see the seals of this book are going to be opened, and the Lamb's going to start opening these seals, and the consequences of the, that which is going to take place. Uh, but w- before we go into that, I have I have finally come to the point where I can't put off 
you know, riding the fence on my view of Revelation anymore. Uh, I have purposefully rode the fence on a lot of issues until now because I realize there's a lot of disagreement and I want to give you a baseline or at least a perspective on how I approach the study of the book so you'll know how we're going to continue reaching our conclusions. Uh, Something is about to happen when the seals are broken. Uh, Both the nation of Israel and the Roman state are persecuting the church, and God is about to act in history. Uh, An event is coming that's going to forever change the way the people of Christ are viewed throughout the world. God is going to bring judgment on those who claim to know him best, uh, but who have broken his covenant, rejected his mistake. Messiah. Almost every commentator, regardless of what view they hold, whether they're futurists or preterists or spiritualists or idealists, whatever, whatever you want to call it, no matter what view they hold, recognizes that there is a parallel relationship between Revelation 6, the breaking of the seals, and Jesus' sayings on the Mount of Olives in the Olivet Discourse, which is Matthew 24, Luke 21, uh, and in Mark. So in the next podcast, before we look at the seals of Revelation 6, I'm going to walk through Matthew 24 with you and show you what Jesus said, uh, what he predicted God would do. And then we're going to see we're going to see it happen in in Revelation six. Uh, and so I, I'm probably going to leave you hanging right there. I, I didn't really tell you anything about uh, what we're going to be talking about, but I'm going to save that for the for the next uh, for the next section. But uh I just need you to know that verse chapter four and chapter five are the hinge pin uh, that uh, that connect the the letters to the seven churches and the rest of the book of Revelation. Uh, everything that we're going to see, everything that we're going to experience from here on out is what pours forth out of these out of this book. Uh, we're going to see the seven seals. Uh, we're going to see uh, the seventh seal, really, when it's open, just brings forth the seven trumpets. And so after the seven seals, in the seventh seal, we have the seven trumpets, and then the seven bowl judgments, and then finally the new heavens and the new earth. Um, so I want you to I want you to understand the connection between Revelation chapter 6 and the Olivet Discourse. Uh, we're, I'll, I'll explain it next time, but that's why next podcast is not going to be Revelation 6. It's going to be uh, an exposition of Matthew 24 uh, to before we get into Revelation 6. So I hope you join us for that.